Over the last several weeks, we've been examining the final words of Jesus in a sermon series entitled, The Seven Last Words. Today, we come to the fifth statement of Jesus from the cross. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to John chapter 19. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 19, I'll be reading one verse this morning, verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and we pray that you will give us minds to think clearly, give us eyes to see vividly, give us a desire to obey passionately. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was only nine o'clock in the morning, and yet it was a hot, sweltering Palestinian day. The sun was already glaring, the air was stuffy, the birds seemed to refuse to sing. The merchants were open for business, the streets were stirring with people, the temple complex was a buzz with all types of activity. This was an important day. It was preparation day before the Passover. The Passover was the the high holiday on the Jewish calendar that commemorated the great Exodus event whereby God delivered their forefathers from Egyptian captivity. Every year, the Israelites would gather in the sacred city of Jerusalem and there they would observe Passover. For an entire week, the population of the city would more than triple what was normal. It was estimated that during these days, during Passover week, more than a quarter of a million people crammed the streets of Jerusalem. Outside the city, Roman soldiers were getting ready for another round of crucifixions. On this day, there would be three, two well-known criminals and the man named Jesus from Nazareth. A crucifixion was originated by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. It was Josephus, the early church historian, who said of crucifixion, it was the most wicked way to die. Cicero had this to say about crucifixion. It is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous form of execution. By the time Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem and made his way atop that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. It looked like the whole town had turned out to watch Jesus die. By the time he got there, he was as weak as an infant. He couldn't even carry his 110-pound crossbeam. In fact, somewhere along the way, they had uh, called out a complete stranger, a guy by the name of Simon from Cyrene, and said, you carry his cross. When Jesus got on top of Calvary, the Roman soldiers threw his body down like a rag doll. He barely looked alive, let alone human. They stretched his arms across the beam. They drove rusty spikes through his wrist and his feet. They lifted him high into the air. They nailed a sign over his head. This is the king of the Jews. They stripped him of his clothes and cast lots for his garments. And there Jesus died. He spoke several words that day. The one statement he makes is 
I am thirsty. Now, out of everything Jesus said, this is so common. In fact, everybody who's ever been crucified always at some point declared, I am thirsty. Being crucified is uh, part and parcel with dehydration and suffocation. So it was very common for anyone who was crucified to declare, I am thirsty. It was a very common statement. In fact, of everything Jesus said, this is the one thing that everybody would have said. And yet, it's also peculiar. It's particular to Jesus. He says it in such a way that it can only be applied to him. He says it in such a way like nobody else had ever spoken it before. Out of all seven statements that Jesus will make from the cross, this is the one that portrays the depth of the humanity of Christ. This is the one that speaks to his ultimate suffering. This is the one that declares that he is the God-man. It's not that Jesus is merely a divine man. It's not that he's a humanized God. He's the God-man. It's not that Jesus was a man who became God, of which there have been none. It's not that Jesus was merely a godly man, of which there have been many. No, Jesus was and is the God-man, fully God and fully human. He has to be that way. Because as God, God is the only one who's capable of paying our sin debt. And as man, he's the only one suitable as our substitute for sinners. So Jesus has to be the God-man. He is the God-man because God is capable of paying your sin debt and mine. And Jesus was completely human because he is your sufficient substitute as he's dangling on the cross. This word that Jesus speaks, that's translated, I am thirsty. It speaks to the overwhelming human suffering of Jesus. That suffering began in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there where Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus prayed so earnestly that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, medically, that's called hematidrosis. It's very rare, yet quite possible, for the capillaries right under the skin, especially in the forehead region, to swell and burst And then what is secreted through the glands is a mixture of blood and sweat. Now, normally, most doctors will tell you that this is brought about because of enormous stress. Now, you and I know what it is to be stressed out, don't we? We know what it is to be overwhelmed. We know what it is to raise a family, to navigate life, to do a job, to have deadlines and responsibilities. We know what it is to be overwhelmed. We know what it is to be full of anxiety. We know what it is to be stressed out. But I dare say that none of us know what it is to be so stressed that we sweat drops of blood. Yet Jesus, in this moment, has the weight of sinful humanity pressing in against him. He is bearing the blunt of your sin and my sin. It is heavy upon his shoulders. He's at the point of a nervous breakdown. He is completely and utterly stressed out. And so his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's on that night that Jesus was arrested. He was taken to the palace of Caiaphas. There he went through uh, trumped up charges and false allegations. On that night, he would have stood about half a dozen trials between Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and then back to Pilate again. This was a grueling evening where all types of people were leveling accusations against him. And ultimately... It was Pilate who said, I find no, no, no reason to condemn this man. I'm going to wash my hands of him. And yet Pilate ultimately 
gave orders for crucifixion. No sooner had the papers been signed that the Roman soldiers seized Jesus and they took him for scourging. They would have tied his body to a whipping post. The torture tool of choice was a whip called the cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was a short whip with a lengthy leather heavy strips. On the end of each of those heavy leather strips would be uh, bound uh, broken pieces of glass or rock or bone. And the Roman soldier would, with all of his might, take that whip and whip the criminal that's tied to the whipping post. I don't have to tell you that there was so much blood, so so much pain associated with this, that there's more than one criminal that never made it off the whipping post. That individual, numerous individuals, would die right there as they're chained to the whipping post because of the enormous blood loss. Because every time that the Roman soldier would whip that into the body of Christ, it would take that bone and that rock and those pieces of broken glass, it would sink deeply into the flesh of Jesus and rip the tissue away of the back of his scalp, of his neck, his back, and his legs. It didn't take very long for the blood to begin to ooze and then it would begin to squirt and splatter upon the ground. It was a gruesome, it was a gross kind of experience. And once that first soldier got tired of whipping the, so, whipping the criminal, then another soldier would stand up and whip with just as much gust and might as the first one. By the time Jesus got done, or by the time they got done with Jesus, his back looked like hamburger meat of just mangled flesh. His tendons, his ligaments, his tissue, his nerve endings, all exposed. Jesus barely even looked alive. His body was swollen. He was beginning to show signs of dehydration. They took him from that whipping post after the scourging and they went and the Roman soldiers then continued to beat him up a little bit. They put a royal purple robe on his shoulders. The fabric from that robe began to adhere to the clotting blood. The Roman soldiers twisted a a crown of thorns and they shoved it onto his precious head puncturing his scalp so that blood continued to flow down his beard. They punched him in the face. They said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. They put a staff in his hand. They mocked as they bowed down in front of him. They slapped his face. They plucked out the beard that was on his face. Then it got time for the criminal's parade. That was the, that was what they called, uh, The criminal, as he made his way through the streets, carrying his own crossbeam. Before doing that, they had to rip off that purple robe and that purple fabric that had already begun to to stick to the clotting blood. It was just ripped off and all the pain just began to pulsate through the body of Jesus. He had experienced severe blood loss. He was a bloody mess. He had experienced an extreme amount of dehydration. Everything inside of him was beginning to shut down. He was so weak that he could not carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene was given that task. When Jesus made his way up the hill called Golgotha, 
the soldiers took his body and stretched him upon the cross. With every swing of the hammer, Jesus shrieked in pain. His heart felt as if it was pounding outside of his chest. They put rusty spikes into his wrist and into his feet. And as they nailed his wrist to the tree, you can imagine how his fingers contorted in pain. They took his right foot, they placed it over his left foot, they pressed both feet against the wood of the cross. They took a long spike and they drove it through the arches of both of those feet, nailing it to the cross. They hoisted Jesus into the air. When they maneuvered the cross in such a way that it finally fell into the hole they had created and dug, it fell with such a jolt, it was like a bone-crushing feeling that went all throughout the body of Jesus. And then gravity took over, and the body of Jesus began to sag on the cross. And as his body began to sag, the pressure points in his wrist, of those spikes in his wrist, became excruciating. And as he sagged, all the oxygen was expelled out of his body. And then in order to get oxygen, he had to pull himself up as strong as he could through his arms and through his legs. As his legs pushed against the cross, that pressure point of the spike through the arches of his feet had extreme amount of pain. And as he rose up, he, he got as much air as he possibly could. And as long as his strength would hold out, and then he collapsed again and his body would sag back down the cross. This rhythm of, of being raised only to be sagged, only to be raised only to be sagged was a rhythm that went on for hours. The longer it went, the less oxygen actually got into his body. He could not have the capacity to take in a good amount of oxygen and air. So less oxygen in his body, more carbon dioxide trapped in his cramping body And every movement Jesus made was full of excruciating pain. The blood that that at first was, was flowing, it began to coagulate or thicken. And the blood that was flowing then became just drops that peppered the ground because it was so thick. Now Jesus is feeling a new pain. It's a new pain. He's never felt this one before. It is a, is a crushing pain upon his chest. It's the pericardium, which is the cavity or the, the area uh, around the heart. It's beginning to fill with fluid. And that fluid is pressing up against the precious heart of Christ. It is pressing, pressing up against that heart so that the heart cannot function as it once did. It cannot pump the blood. And the blood that it does pump is so thick that it's slowly making its way through his body and, and out of his body. And there's enormous pain in his chest. It feels as if it's going to explode. It feels as if everything is caving in inside of him. Jesus must have a fever by now. His head is throbbing. It's, it's, a, it's a pulsating pain with, with the weak beating of his heart. His face is swollen. His lips are swollen. His tongue begins to stick to the roof of his mouth. And then all of a sudden, he speaks a one-word phrase. Dipso. The word dipso means I am thirsty. 
For a second time, the Roman soldiers, they took a sponge, they dipped it in cheap wine vinegar, they put it on a hyssop stalk, they hoisted it into the air so he could wet his lips. Jesus said a a few other things, and then he died. The one who is the author of life laid down his life. Jesus, who spoke and everything came into existence. In that moment, Jesus, the God-man, died. Because it was almost Passover, the Jewish leaders did not want any of those three criminals dangling on the cross, not during the high holiday. So they had petitioned Pilate, and Pilate had given the orders that the Roman soldiers could break the legs of the criminals. So they went to the criminal on the right and the criminal on the left, and they broke their legs. And in moments, that expedited the suffocation process. And in moments, those criminals died. When the Roman soldier came to Jesus, he discovered that Jesus was already dead. So he did not break his bones, as in fulfillment of Scripture. For the Scripture says that not one of his bones will be broken. So to verify that Jesus was dead, the Roman soldier took out a long spear. He thrust it through the fifth inner space of the rib cage of Jesus. It would have punctured the pericardium, which is the cavity around the heart. It would have punctured that pericardium, gone to and through the heart, so that when he brought the sword back out, it looked as if blood and something like water flowed. The blood from the heart, all the water, the fluid that had developed around the heart. And the soldier said, yes, this man is dead. Most medical professionals say that Jesus did not die of suffocation. That Jesus died of heart failure. His heart, so pressed, so constricted, so much fluid. That it could be stated that Jesus died of a broken heart. His heart just stopped beating. And Jesus, the God-man, died. Out of all the statements, this one-word phrase, dipso, I am thirsty, it, it, it can be quite problematic. You can ask yourself the question, what's the significance of this word? What's the significance of this phrase? Why does he say this? Is he just saying something that everybody says? Or is there something more to it? I think the answer to the significance of that one-word phrase is threefold. I think first that Jesus is longing for God. Throughout the Bible, the imagery of thirst is the imagery of longing for God. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Throughout the Bible, there's this imagery that when we thirst, we are thirsting after God. We are longing for God. On numerous occasions, Jesus would Say that if you feast on me, the bread of life, then you'll be satisfied. If you, if you believe in me, streams of living water will well up inside of you. Jesus seemed to say that he was the one that would completely satisfy your life. You may recall a story that's told in John chapter 4. Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. She came to the well at high noon. Now, the reason she came so late in the day was because she didn't want to meet anybody. She did not want to have to interact with anybody. She was hoping that nobody in their right mind would be at the well in the hottest part of the day, which was high noon. And to her surprise, there's Jesus. Now, she doesn't know him. He doesn't know her. And yet he engages her in conversation. This is flabbergasting because Jesus is a 
rabbi. He is a religious man and no religious man would talk to a woman and especially not a Jewish religious man would talk to a Samaritan woman and Jesus breaks all the norms and he blurs all the lines and he buries and he carries a conversation with this woman. Will you give me a drink? I tell you what, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink and he would give you living water. She said, oh, sir, now you're just being silly. There's no way you can draw water. This well is deep. How do you get this living water? And Jesus says, if you believe upon me, streams of living water will well up inside of you to eternal life. She's on the brink of salvation. If you listen closely to the text, you can hear the tune just as I am. It's being played in the background. The invitation is being issued. Jesus is casting the net. She's about ready to walk down the aisle, sign the card, become a bona fide member of the church. She's about to come at invitation time. And then Jesus does something that's really quite shocking. He said, go call your husband. Now these eyes that were locked on Jesus then began to dance and dart against the ground. You think to yourself, now why is Jesus telling her to go call her husband? Oh, maybe it's because he wants him to be saved as well. Good idea, Jesus. Atta boy, way to go. And then she says, I have no husband. And Jesus turns the night just a bit. And he says, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the sixth guy that you're now shacking up with, he's not your husband either, is he? You think to yourself, Jesus, what are you doing? She's about to come down the aisle. Don't talk about the failed marriages. Don't talk about the broken relationships. Listen, let her come to you and then clean up the mess up. But don't keep her from coming down the aisle. Jesus, can't you hear just as I am being played in the background? This is a great invitation moment. Jesus, you are messing it up. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus talk to this woman about her failed marriages? I think the answer is because Jesus wanted her to know just how thirsty she was. She had been trying to quench her thirst in the sensual embrace of another man. She was trying to quench her thirst as if she was drinking a tall glass of sand. It wasn't doing any good. She would go through men like Kleenexes because none of those men were any comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who completely can satisfy anyone who comes to him. And Jesus is showing this woman just how thirsty she is. She begins to change the subject because whenever we become uncomfortable, what do we do? We change the subject. We don't like the subject matter. We don't like the topic. So we're going to change the topic. So she changes the topic. She says, I know you're a religious man. It's obvious you can really tell a lot. Uh, So what about worship? Let's talk about worship wars. Eventually, Jesus gets back on the topic of salvation. It causes her to drop her bucket. She goes back into town. She says, listen, I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They all laughed at her. They said, anybody in this town could tell you what you've ever done and who you've done it with. Everybody knows what you've done every Friday night. It's not a shock. It's not surprising. She said, no, no, this man is different. Could this man be the Christ? And John says, because of this woman's testimony, Jesus stayed in that Samaritan village for a couple of days and held a great revival. Why? Because this woman finally figured out just how thirsty she was. She was longing for God and she didn't even know it. She was trying to quench her thirst by everything else in the world other than a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ. 
Which that begs the question, my friend, how thirsty are you? Let me ask it another way. What are you trying to use to quench the thirst in your life? All of us are made with a God cavity. All of us are made with a hole that only God can fill. And yet, if we don't know God, then we try to stuff it with other things in this world. My friend, what are you trying to quench your thirst with? Many times we try to quench our thirsting and our longing of life with just more. More money, more stuff, more cars, more things, more rewards, more responsibilities, more sex, more shopping, more food, more relationships, more, more, more. And all the while, what we're doing is we're choking down sand in the hopes that that sand will somehow quench our life. And it won't. It is a terrible imitation of the Messiah. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. So Jesus in this moment is declaring, I am thirsty. And in some real way, he's standing in our stead and he's declaring, I am longing for God. St. Augustine said it this way, that God thirsts to be thirsted after. God, your God, my God, God longs to be longed for. God thirsts to be thirsted after. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. The author of that hymn acknowledges, I am longing for God. I long for him. I am thirsting after him. Every single hour, every single minute, every single second, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Have you gotten that place? Have you gotten that spot where you realize you cannot even inhale and exhale without the presence of God in your life? Brother, sister, you can't do anything. Friend, you cannot do anything. You have a longing in your heart. And I know that you're trying to stuff it with the sinful delicacies of this world, but nothing can satisfy, not like Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'm thirsty, what he's saying is I'm longing for God. And as Jesus is hanging in our place, he is declaring, this is what our prayer needs to be. We need to long for God. So first and foremost, Jesus says this, and it's rather significant because we ought to long for God. But secondly, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. After all, what did John write? Knowing that all things were being completed so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Why did Jesus say that? Because he's fulfilling scripture. What scripture you say? Well, in Psalm 69, it says that my thirst is parched and leaving me parched. And they gave me wine vinegar for my thirst. That's a, that's a messianic foreshadowing. That is what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is fulfilling that scripture. And it's not just there. You have it in Exodus chapter 12, uh, Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, my strength is gone. My bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. What is that? That is the fluid in my pericardium has developed around me so that it feels as if my heart is wasting away to wax. My tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. That's what the psalmist says. He's describing crucifixion and he's describing the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus is fulfilling the scripture. I've already told you earlier that the reason his bones were not broken was to fulfill scripture. For in the Old Testament, it says that not one of his bones will be broken. So Jesus 
dies the same way he lives. He's obsessed with obedience. He's obsessed with obeying the scripture. That that's how he lived his life. That's even how he's dying. The reason he says dip so is because he wants to fulfill scripture. The reason he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is to fulfill scripture. The reason he's dying on the cross is to fulfill scripture. The reason he's enduring this for you and for me is to fulfill scripture. Jesus is obsessed with obedience. So it begs the question, how obsessed are you with obeying the scripture? Let me ask that another way. Is the Bible the final court of appeal in your life? Jesus says, listen, the ultimate authority for me is the word of God. And so I'm going to live my life. I'm even going to die in this life, obedient to the word of God. My friend, as a Christ follower, as a little Christ, as a Christian, is the Bible your final court of appeal? What is your highest form of, of authority? All of us have a highest form of authority. All of us have a hierarchy of authority. And if you talk to most people that live in our culture today, and if you ask them, what is your source of authority? What are they going to say? It's me. I am my highest form of authority. Whatever I want to do, I will do. Whatever I see as a benefit, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be my highest form of authority. Some others would say, well, the highest form of authority is not me, but it's logic or reason. Some would say my tradition whether it's a religious tradition or a family tradition or just upbringing, they would say, it's my tradition. But Jesus lived his life in such a way that his highest form of, of authority was the scripture. And if we are followers of Christ, then the highest court of appeal in our life has to be the Bible. So Christian, let me ask you, do you long to read the scripture? Do you desire to obey the word of God? Do you want to know it and live it? Is it your goal to fulfill the scripture in your life? Friend, if you are a Christ follower, your mission is the same as his mission. His desire was that he was obsessed with obedience. We're obsessed with a lot of things and obedience to Christ may not be one of them or it may be pretty low on the totem pole. But Jesus says, watch the way I live and watch the way I die. Jesus said this, to fulfill scripture. Do you watch the words that come out of your lips? Do you watch the things that you watch on your television or your computer? Do you take note of the places you go, the places your feet carry you? Do you take note of what's going on? Because you, my friend, have to live your life with an obsession to obey the scripture. Jesus says, I thirst because he's showing us not only how to live, but also how to die. He is showing us an obsession with fulfilling the word of God. So first, I think he is longing for God. Secondly, I think he is fulfilling the scripture and showing us how to live and die. But third, I think that Jesus is taking the condition of the condemned upon himself. Jesus is taking the condition of the condemned upon himself. Once again, uh, throughout the scripture, the imagery of thirst is the imagery of the condemned. Jesus told a story, it's recorded in Luke chapter 16. It's a story of an anonymous rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man, we don't even know his name, but we do know that he lived in the lap of luxury. 
He had a lot of nice things. In fact, he wore purple clothing, which was very expensive. And he wore linen undergarments, which means that even his fruit of a looms were high dollar. So this man lived in the lap of luxury. He dressed to the nines. He ate the best of food. He drove the fanciest of chariots. He lived in the largest house because it had a gate at the entrance of the house, which in those days was usually just reserved for royalty. So this man was very wealthy. Outside his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now don't don't get confused. This is not Lazarus, the best friend of Jesus. This is just a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. And he just gives the guy the name Lazarus. Lazarus has no family. He has no friends. He has no finances. He's got nothing. In fact, the only people that would walk by and give him the time of day were dogs. And they would come and lick his sores. Jesus says both these guys died. Lazarus died and nobody knew about it, but he went to heaven. It's symbolized by the side of Abraham. The anonymous rich man, he died and everybody knew about it. Place was packed. But Jesus said he went to hell. And from hell, he could look up and see Abraham's side. And beside Abraham, there was that poor man named Lazarus. And so still thinking that uh, the rich man could call the shots, the rich man said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, why don't you order Lazarus around? Tell him to go and dip his finger in cool water and come and touch my tongue because I'm dying here in an agony of fire. What's he saying? He's saying, I am thirsty. He's in the condition of the condemned. This wealthy man is in hell. He's getting what his sins deserve. He is in condemnation. And being in condemnation, what is his condition? His condition is, I am thirsty. Tell Lazarus to go dip his finger in cool water and come and cool my tongue because I am thirsty. I am condemned. The point is that this guy is personifying what it is to be condemned. He is thirsty. In Revelation chapter 7, When Jesus talks about those going to heaven, he describes them in this way. They will hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. You go to heaven, you're not going to be confined and and trapped into the cravings and appetites of this world. They will hunger no more, neither will they thirst anymore. They will not be thirsty. They will not be in that condition of the condemned. They'll be in the condition of the saved. When Jesus declares, I am thirsty, he is taking your condemnation upon himself. He is taking the condition of the condemned. There is a sweet swap of salvation. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his salvation. We give Jesus our condemnation. He gives us his declared innocence or righteousness. I don't know about you, but we get the good end of the stick, don't you think? I mean, Jesus gives us his salvation and we give him our condemnation. Jesus is dangling there on the cross in a condition of the condemned because of your sin and because of my sin and he declares I am thirsty so Jesus identifies with us so that we may identify with him he is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 he took our sins upon himself the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him and by his wounds we are healed 
Jesus identifies with us so that we in turn can identify with him. Last week I said from James Boyce that Jesus was bearing our hell so that we may share in his heaven. Jesus literally was taking our condemnation so that he could give us his salvation. This is a hallelujah moment. At least it's an amen moment for you to realize that Jesus took your place on the cross. When Jesus declares, I am thirsty, he is identifying with you and with me in our condemned state. So let me ask you, because of sin, maybe not directly because of your sin, but just because of sin as it was ushered into the world in the Garden of Eden, is your body ever racketed with pain? So was his. Do you ever feel God forsaken? So did he. Do you ever feel like you're groping in darkness? So did he. Do you ever feel like your friends have abandoned you? So did he. He is identifying with you so that you, my friend, can identify with him. And death does not take the life of Jesus. But Jesus lays it down on his terms, in his time. So that Paul can later write, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took your condemnation upon himself. He thirsted for you. So that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I can't tell you, but that is my favorite. I can tell you that is my favorite verse in all the Bible. There, there are a lot of great ones, but there's no one greater than that one. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation. For those in Christ. Why? Because Jesus took upon himself the condition of the condemned. The way you know that is because Jesus declares, I am thirsty. He laid down his life. And he who lays down the life has authority to pick it back up again. On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus got up. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Church, I want us to thirst after the one who thirsts after us. Jesus declares, I am thirsty. What's he saying? He's saying we ought to desire, have a longing to be with God. We ought to long for God. We ought to thirst after him. Don't choke down the things of this world in the hopes that somehow that'll satisfy your life. Only Jesus can satisfy your life. And Jesus shows us not only how to live, but also how to die with an obsession, with obedience to Christ. And ultimately, Jesus takes our condemnation upon himself to give us salvation. I don't know about you, but that's a mouthful when Jesus just said, dip so. He said, I thirst. Because he wants us to thirst after him. I thirst, Jesus says, Because in the words of St. Augustine, God thirsts to be thirsted after. God longs to be longed for. So this morning, let me ask you, how thirsty are you? The only one who can satisfy is Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's one here who is lost, I pray That person will come to salvation in Jesus Christ today. If there's a believer here and they are dabbling in sin, I pray, Lord Jesus, you will convict them of sin and call them unto righteousness. 
Well, Father, if there's somebody here who needs to join this church, I pray that now in this moment they will come forward and find a place to belong here at First Baptist Pelham. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.